This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to episode 31 of the Ned Ryan podcast. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the bigger themes, obviously, that are at stake on November 3rd. And we've heard a lot of talk about socialism, uh, socialistic, you know, socialist pro- policies versus free market capitalism. And, and that's what I'm going to discuss in more detail, but I also want you to see it through the lens of regime change politics. Others have made this point, but I, I, this is one of the reasons that you see such heated politics these days. We are truly discussing, when you get down to the policies, obviously, socialism versus capitalism, the level above that, more of the 30,000-foot level, is regime change politics, because we really are talking about two very different ways of governing. We're not talking about you know having you know, disagreements over how big a tax cut should be uh, or how much money should be spent in one place or versus another, all these things. We're talking about a completely different governing philosophy. And I, I recently spoke at a fundraiser for President Trump in which I made the point, we really obviously have made the point on this uh, podcast as well. We dropped an administrative state inside of a constitutional republic, two very different governing philosophies. And that really is what we're talking about. That you have an administrative state, statism, socialism, governing philosophy that's finally broken out into the open, right? It's been hollowing out a republic for over 100 years. And now we have this open debate, a, a far more robust and on-the-surface debate about which way we're going to go as a country. Are we going to have this heavily statist approach, which ultimately leads to socialism. Again, I've described the Green New Deal as coercive socialism, and there's another term for that. It's called communism. The only way that these policies, Green New Deal and others, will be implemented is through massive coercion and by force. That is communism versus our constitutional republic. Are we going to go back to truly believing and truly living it out in which all power flows from the people? In a constitutional republic, all power flows from the people to their elected representatives, who they make the stewards of the power and monies given to them to create and enact a government and policies that are meant to advance and protect the interests of we the people, the American people. That's why everything is so heated. Because Donald Trump walked into D.C., the great outsider, and said, this is not how it's supposed to work. You know, I'm the one that decides in a constitutional republic. The duly elected president decides and what foreign and domestic policy is inside of his administration and the administrative state actors said, we don't think so. We think we're the ones to decide. That's why you see all of the people that believe in a top-down command and control statism approach to governing, whether it's Democrats, the left, those inside the administrative state, many inside the mainstream media, academia, Hollywood, all uniting. They've been united, but even more so and have elevated their resistance to Trump even more so, because they realize he truly is an existential threat to their way of life, their approach to governing, because he doesn't, he doesn't accept the premise. Therefore, he has to be destroyed because of the power that he has. And I, I've also made this argument, too, that for many on the left, first of all, we all have a religious belief system. I made this point in my recent American Greatness article that the dogma lives loudly in the left and the right. You know, they're going to say this, they've said it about Amy Coney Barrett, um, and they refuse to accept it for themselves. But there is a secular faith system in existence that politics for them is a religion, right? That they think they will perfect humanity and society through the force of politics. They are religious zealots, right? And their religion is politics. 
And all of a sudden, big bad orange man walks into their holy of holies, the administrative state, says, "Mm, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think this is what was ever intended. This is not how we are supposed to be as an American people. That's why all the vitriol responses and the hatred and the loathing of Trump, because he is a threat to everything that has been building over the last hundred years. And I hope in the second term, he takes a sledgehammer and sticks a dynamite to the administrative state and blows it apart, drains the swamp. But below that, after you look at the higher level stuff, of course, enactment of policies. So socialism, right? It's undeniable that socialist policies and politicians are gaining traction in modern American politics. The politicians, chief among them, Bernie Sanders, think about it. In 2016, some of the ideas that Bernie Sanders were, you know, that he was talking about, even those in the Democratic Party are like, oh, this has this is way too far left. And fast forward four years from now, it truly is the dominating force inside the Democratic Party. It has eaten the Democratic Party from within. And Joe Biden, in his semi-senile state, uh, even though I think if left to his own devices, is more moderate, will not be able to resist or hold off. The far left forces inside of his party. In fact, I said it on Tucker the other night. I'm not even sure he serves out his first term, right? I'm not even sure he serves out the first year of his term. And that Kamala Harris, who is as far left uh, as Bernie Sanders, not kidding, look at the voting records, would then be president of the United States. And Biden truly is a Trojan horse, empty vessel, wherein they hope that they can somehow usher in true socialism into the United States using the guise of someone that's been known as a more moderate figure, although I would quibble with that, looking at some of the ways he's, some of the things he's done in the past, but that that's the premise. So it's undeniable the left has really, truly taken over. And what's amazing is how bold they're being about it. They're asserting their policies. All these socialist policies, they're, they're, they are kind of drawing a little bit of a, well... You know, this is more Scandinavian socialism. It's not really like the socialist dictatorships of Cuba or the Soviet Union. But if you think about it, the Scandinavian countries are not really socialist. They're more capitalist systems with a vast welfare state. Right? The programs come at a high cost to respective populations in the form of substantially higher income tax and sales taxes on the people. But the Scandinavian countries that they're claiming these are the models, they're a lot more market-oriented than the United States even in some respects. They have fewer regulations. They have lower corporate taxes. Some cases, there's no minimum wage. Uh, These countries don't have to worry about defense spending, of course, to the same extent that we do. Uh, Additionally, median income and the size of the American economy vastly overshadows that of its Scandinavian counterparts. Uh, policies such as universal health care in these nations are not as effective as American socialists proclaim. Uh, you know, you even start to dig down a little bit more on Scandinavian countries. Their abortion laws are surprisingly more conservative than what we currently have in the United States. Uh, a fact that the U.S. socialist politicians completely ignore. I bet you haven't heard, right? Because nobody's talking about it. So the high cost of Scandinavian socialism uh, as a lifelong so- lifelong socialist, Bernie Sanders rebranded himself as a democratic socialist during the 2016 presidential primaries, explaining, when I talk about democratic socialism, I'm not talking 
I'm not looking at Venezuela. I'm not looking at Cuba. I'm looking at countries like Denmark and Sweden. Mm-hmm. Sure, Bernie. These countries are not socialists. They're capitalist countries that have been funding expansive welfare programs, again, through means of high taxation on the entire population, not just the rich, by the way. The welfare programs include, but are not limited to, government-sponsored health care, maternal and paternal leave, subsidized higher education and free colleges for all citizens, and international students, by the way, if it's Norway, uh, and then obviously generous paid sick leave. In 2017, taxes as a percentage of GDP were, by country, 50.7% in Sweden, 53.5% in Denmark, 54.7% in Norway. In 2016, taxes at all levels of government in the United States averaged out to be 26%, so basically half of that. And that was before the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, was passed. So while our overall tax rates are lower by the time you add in the entire population, just so we're clear, the entire population of the U.S. and then average it out, they are far more progressive than Scandinavia, meaning top marginal tax rates are increasing at a faster rate and by a larger amount as income increases. So an American would have to earn $500,000 a year or more to be subject to the highest of the seven tax brackets of 37%. This rate taxes every dollar made past 500000 at 37%. Such an income level is eight times the average national income. The highest tax rates go into effect at one and a half times the average income in Sweden, 1.6 times the average income in Norway, and about 1.3 times uh, when you look at Denmark. So if the U.S. had a tax code as flat as Denmark's, then someone earning about 70000 a year would actually be subject to a top marginal tax rate of 46.3%. That's just the income tax, though. Scandinavian countries have a 25% VAT tax, a value-added tax on all consumer purchases, which amounts to a heavy sales tax. So even when dollar value of payments from government-sponsored benefits are subtracted from the tax burden, a single-income couple with two children earning the average wage will pay an average personal income tax rate of 22% in the Scandinavian countries, while the same rate is only about 14% here in the United States. Across all family types, average American family earning the median wage would pay between two to 5000 in taxes every year under the Nordic model. This is a net increase, which subtracts, of course, the value of government benefits, and it refers to economic policies in Scandinavia, Finland, and Iceland. So despite these lavish welfare states, household incomes in these three Scandinavian countries are in fact significantly lower than in the United States when adjusted for purchasing power. Norway, again, with these adjustments, 51,489. Sweden's just over 50,000. Denmark, just over 44,000. So lower household income among Scandinavians likely caused by the stringent taxation and other economic policies, but it's not ethnicity. Evidence for this claim is found in substantially higher incomes among Scandinavians who have moved to the United States in comparison to the native Scandinavians. So if you think about it, higher incomes are not, higher incomes not adjusted for lower tax rates in the United States, which allows them to keep a larger portion of their money, which was already higher for their Scandinavian counterparts. So if you look at Norwegian Americans, they're making 62,000 
and change, which is 21% higher than their native Norwegian counterparts. Swedish Americans are making 62,295, which is 23% higher. And Danish Americans are making 63,630, which is 43% higher. Uh, in 2012, the median household income for the United States was just over 51,000, but among Scandinavian Americans, it was over 67,000. Some more recent recent statistics uh, in 2019 show that by the time you add all of these different dynamics and look at the Scandinavian countries, the effective top marginal tax rates, when you include income, payroll, consumption, employee social contributions, listen to this. In Sweden, it's over 75%. In Finland, 70%. In Denmark, 66%. Norway, 62%. And then you compare it to the United States, we're at 47%. Again, this doesn't include some of the... Um, it, it doesn't include all the last little dynamics, but it includes most of it, obviously, because it includes consumption, sales tax. Uh, household debt to GDP per country as of December of 2019. Denmark, 112. Norway, 105. Sweden, 88. United States, 75%. Finland, 66%. On the corporate tax front, prior to the adoption of the 2017 uh, tax cut, the United States had the fourth highest corporate tax rate in the world, which obviously put it in a non-competitive position to attract business, business from around the world. Now, it's at an average global rate. But the disparity between the United States corporate tax rate and those of the Scandinavian countries was even greater back then, which led to a favorable business climate in the Scandinavian countries. In turn, these countries were then in position of being able to fund their vast social welfare programs, although only to a certain extent. I think the other thing that's disingenuous about Sanders and the rest saying, well, we're just doing this uh, Scandinavian socialism, not Venezuelan or Cuban. There are certain things that are being missed, just slightly um, big dynamics, including Population and ethnic demographics. General rule of thumb, countries with smaller populations that are pretty much ethnically homogenous are better able to manage large social programs such as universal health care than a larger, more ethnically diverse nation like, say, us, the United States. So each one of the four major Scandinavian countries, I mean, literally have a fraction of the United States population are much more ethnically homogenous than America. For example, Norway, 5.368 million people. So about just under 5.4 million people, entire population of Norway as of 2020. When it comes to the ethnic makeup of Norway, 83% are Norwegian, 8.3% other European, and about 8.5% are other. Look at Sweden. There's about 10.2 million people for the entire population of Sweden as of 2019. Ethnically, it's about 81% Swedish, 1.8% Syrian, 1.4% Finnish, 1.4% Iraqi, and 14.5% other as of 2017. Look at Denmark. 5.8 million people as of 2019. 86% Danish. Includes those in Greenland, 1.1% uh, Turkish, and 12.6% other, typically Polish, Syrian, German, Iraqi, and Romanian. In Finland, 5.5 million people as of 2019. 93% are Finnish, 
5.6% are Swede, half a percent are Russian, 0.1% are Romanian, and 0.1% are Sami. Uh, that was of 2006. That all to say, the overwhelming majority of those that live in Finland, uh, 98, 99%, are literally either Finnish or Swedish and a population of 5.5 million. So look at the United States. We're at about 330 million people right now, give or take, right? 60.4% are non-Hispanic white, 18.3% are Hispanic and Latino, 13.4% are black, 59 are Asian, 1.3% are Native American or Alaskan Natives, 0.2% are Native Hawaiian or other uh, Pacific Islanders, and another roughly 3% are two or more races. That all to say, 330 million versus typically, for all these Scandinavian countries, anywhere between 5 and 10 million people per country. Another reason that I've discussed in the past but needs to be highlighted in this situation is the fact that these Scandinavian countries, again, fraction of the size of the United States, ethnically homogenous, also have the ability to do all these social welfare programs and have high taxation rates because they are spending a fraction on national defense that we do. So as a percentage of GDP, the NATO country, NATO spending per country as a percentage of GDP as of 2020 this year, the United States is just under 3.5% of GDP on national defense. Norway's 1.7, Denmark is 1.3. So compared to these Scandinavian countries, we are spending a disproportionate amount of money on national defense compared to them especially, of course, the Scandinavian countries. So what you're supposed to do as part of NATO is spend 2%, right? 2% of GDP is supposed to be spent on defense. Scandinavian countries are not doing that since we're essentially covering the gap, the difference, which Donald Trump has made a point of. So therefore they get to, because we're making up the gap in the funding so they can then spend that money on their robust social welfare programs. So take the United States out of the equation. Right? What if we left NATO? Then all of a sudden, these European countries and Scandinavian countries, they're either going to have to raise taxes, incredibly already, you know, incredibly high rates already, they'd have to raise them, or they'd have to cut their social welfare services, or in fact, they might actually have to do both. So I would remind people, Sweden and Finland are not part of NATO, uh, but they do not spend anywhere as much uh, as the United States does on, on national defense. So, although Scandinavian countries have universal health care, the quality and expedience of this care are not as positive, of course, not as positive as depicted by Bernie Sanders and others on the left here in this country. A key metric that proves this is the waiting time for key health care services, which are incredibly long in several Scandinavian countries. So, let's start with some of those. Hip replacement and wait times from specialist assessment to treatment, 110 days in Norway, 90 days in Finland, 75 days in Sweden, 37 days, actually relatively short in Denmark. Knee replacement times, uh, wait times, Norway, 139 days, Finland, 106, Sweden, 90, Denmark, 40. Cataract surgery, Norway, it's 97 days, Finland, 85, Sweden, 48, Denmark, 41. So how long do patients have to get how long did patients have 
to get an appointment after receiving advice to seek a doctor in specialist healthcare. These are from a few years ago. United States, less than four weeks. About 70% were at least four weeks. In Sweden, less than four weeks, only 48%. uh, At least four weeks, 44%. In Norway, less than four weeks to get an appointment, obviously 37%. How long did it take patients to wait for an elective surgery? In the United States, the wait time is less than a month for 61% of people. One to four months is 31%. Four more months, 3%. In Sweden, less than a month is only 37%. One to four months is about 47%. Four more months, 